podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast on Tuesday, November the 3rd, also known as Election Day for those of you in America. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com and use my my code EPLVPN to get 20% off your hardware or software package. A quick day today. There's not a whole bunch to be talking about. Uh, We have two games from last night to go over, some silliness from Garth Crooks, and some gossip to wrap up. So we'll start with Fulham against West Brom. Big, big win for Fulham. A 2-0 victory over fellow newly promoted team West Brom, and a comprehensive victory as well. This was easily Fulham's best performance of the season. And going into the game, there was massive pressure on them. You have to look at this as a must-win game, even this early in the season. Defeat here, they would have been four points behind Brighton, five behind West Brom. And when you start to fall that far behind this early in the season, that kind of gap can multiply quite quickly. Fulham went into this game with a very, very strong 11. An entirely new back four compared to what they had last season. Obviously, Ariola also new in goal. But Ola Ene at right back. Joachim Anderson back from injury at the heart of the defence, organising things, leading things, next to Tosin, whose surname I can't pronounce, and Anthony Robinson at left-back. This is a really good defence, potentially. Potentially, this is very, very good. And when you consider that Aina is in on loan with an option to buy for less than £10 million, Tosin cost about £4 million. Anthony Robertson, Robinson, I think, was £3 million. They have very little outlay, but they also bought Kenny Tete for about four million. These are the type of players that they can, if the, if they go down, if the worst happens and they go down, they can bring these players down to the championship with them. They're not going to be on massive wages. They're not go. They're not having albatross contracts around their necks. They're not massive transfer fees that they're going to want to recoup. Fulham have very smartly put together their defence. Now, I'd imagine. If they want to keep Anderson after the season, the cost would be quite high. I'd imagine somewhere north of twenty million. If they stay up, I think it's an absolute no-brainer to do it because he is a very good defender and he seems well suited to the Premier League. The same with Aina. If they stay up, you absolutely keep him. He's a very, very talented player. Highlighted last night by the goal he scored, but we'll get to that. In midfield, they had Zambo and Angisa, who I think's been one of the the best midfielders in the league so far this season, even in a team that hadn't won before last night. And Mario Lamina, who seems to be finding his best form. I thought those two together worked really well last night, patrolling that midfield, protecting that back four, allowing the fullbacks to bomb on. And that is what you get with Aina and Robinson, is you do get fullbacks who love getting forward. Um, in the line of three behind uh, Mitrovic, then they went with Reed on the right, Kearney centrally, and Luckman on the left. They also had Loftus-Cheek on the bench, who I think is a, a better player than Kearney, 
Kearney obviously is the captain, so that is why he is, you know, one of the starters. But I think if you put Loftus Cheek there behind Mitrovic, you may be only one player shy of having a really solid mid 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 table team. Genuinely think that that's a mid table team, comfortably. Um, the big changes for them obviously have been moving on from Dennis Adoy, moving on from Tim Ream. Those type of players, good honest pros, but the championship level. And they were causing Fulham to really struggle this season. Having them out of the team, having these new players they brought in, really did help. On the opposite side of things, uh, West Brom lined up with Johnston in goal, Furlong, Ivanovic, Ajay, and Townsend. I thought Townsend had a good game from left back. That centre-back pairing for me just is not going to cut it at all. Um, Livermore as the holding midfielder, and then Gallagher and Kravinovic alongside him uh, getting forward a bit more. Pereira and Diangana out wide, and Carlin Grant up front. And again, it's—I mean—it is a good team. There's there's good players there. You, you do kind of look at that attacking trio and think there's a lot of potential with them if they can if they can click and gel. Um, especially with Gallagher from midfield and, and Kravinovic, like that's a lot of attacking talent. That's a lot of players who could potentially win you games. The problem is at the opposite end of the field. The problem is that that defense just isn't functioning well. And I'm getting big, big doubts over Sam Johnson at this level as well. I haven't been impressed with him so far this season. Fulham obviously go ahead through Bobby Reed. Um, really good goal, really good headed goal. Mitrovic. Plays a big part, winning a header, cushioning it perfectly, and Reed scores from six, seven yards out. Uh, and then four minutes later, Ole Ene with an absolutely brilliant goal. Uh, cuts inside and with his left foot just absolutely latches it into the top corner. No chance for the goalkeeper at all. And I thought after that, Fulham looked the better team. West Brom had more possession and. It was almost like Fulham were allowing them to have that possession and just picking them off and counter-attacking. West Brom had 10 shots on goal, but only one, one on target, as opposed to Fulham, who had 13 on goal, but six on target. Fulham kept working the goalkeeper, very unlucky not to get a third goal. Uh, Bobby Reid had a great chance to just put the game to bed. Uh, it was cleared off the line after um, Sam Johnson had made an absolute hames. Of, of an incident where he comes out to the right right hand side of his box to deal with Adamola Luckman, kicks it straight off Luckman rather than clearing it or doing anything else with it. Uh, I think it's Kearney then sweeps it across, goes for goal, it's cleared off the line, bounces back to Bobby Reid, and he really should score, but another another defender gets back in time to to block the shot. So all told, Fulham were the better team, uh, deserved to win this game, deserved to lift themselves off the bottom of the league. And, you know, for now, they sit 17th on four points. Uh, West Brom on 18th, Sheffield United and Burnley 19th and 20th. A little bit concerning for those teams. The lack of urgency that we saw from both of those teams the weekend uh, was quite striking. But Fulham have kept themselves in the mix. They are only three points behind Manchester United. United do have a game in hand, but they are only three points behind them. So that is what it is. Uh, then we had Leeds against Leicester. And to be totally honest, going into this game, I did fancy Leeds. I thought with the injuries that Leicester had, this was an opportunity for Leeds. Now, 
Leeds had their own injuries. Uh, Calvin Phillips was out. They did get Liam Cooper back. Um, he didn't look at all fit. I don't think he should have played. Uh, I bet Robin Cock wishes that he hadn't played. Uh, not through injury, just because Jamie Vardy bullied him. That's exactly what happened. Um, Leicester lined up with James Justin, Wesley Fofana, and Christian Fuchs as a back three, which was a little bit surprising. And then Mark Albrighton pulled in as a wing back, uh, Luke Thomas on the other side, Mendy and Thielemans in midfield, uh, Dennis Prayette playing just above them, and then Harvey Barnes kind of supporting Jamie Vardy in attack. It it shows the depth of this Leicester squad. That's a team without Madison, without Ndidi, without Ricardo Pereira, Tim Castanier, Johnny Evans, and Kagler Sionchu. And that's still a strong eleven. So it does show the depth that they've got there. It's a very, very good Leicester squad. On the bench, they had Wes Morgan, Danny Ward, Ian Acho, Eosie Perez, Hamza Chowdhury, and Cengiz Under. Along with James Madison, who came on. But that is a really, really strong squad that Leicester have put together there. I, I really do think that from a squad point of view, there's only three teams in the league better than them. Now from from Basically from a first 11 point of view, if you put everybody's first 11, strongest 11 down on paper, I do think Leicester have the fourth best first 11 after Liverpool, City and Spurs. There's so much talent through that team, and they showed it last night. I'm going to need to see Jamie Vardy's long-form birth cert because there's no way that guy is nearly 34. Absolutely no way. Last night, he just set out to terrorize Robin Cock and that leads back line. The first goal comes from Harvey Barnes, really good pressing on Luke Ayling. Ball is played back towards the goalkeeper, and Vardy's on it really, really quickly. Nips in, draws the keeper, little simple pass across. Barnes has looped around, and it's a simple tap-in. It's just great play from both Barnes and Vardy, and it set the tone for the night. That was literally it. They were just going to terrorize that Leeds back line. Um, Leeds got their, or Leicester rather, got their second then. Uh, again, Vardy involved with a good header. How he gets to that ball, I have no idea because the defenders should have that all day. But Vardy, just effort and pace, gets to the ball. Good header down. Messier makes a good save. It drops out. Yuri Telemans is four yards out. He's easily, easily going to score, and he does. And that sort of set the tone then. Leicester, with that lead, just started inviting leads onto them and then just trying to hit them on the counterattack. It was very, very clever play. Um, Leeds get one back Stuart Dallas with a free kick a little bit of luck to it he's not trying to score he is putting the ball into the box nobody gets a touch and it just wrong foots Casper Schmeichel who has to wait before committing to see if somebody's going to get a touch to it uh, a little bit unfortunate for him but fortunate for Leeds and, it, and it, it set up what I thought was going to be a really good second half but Leicester were having none of it Leicester were having none of Leeds attempts to drag them into some sort of dogfight just continue to sit back and do the thing. And again, they get the third goal on a counter-attack. Really good move. James Madison picks the ball up. Lovely first touch. Lovely pass through the chain goes under. And super unselfish play. Could easily have taken the chance on himself, but just clips it back into the central area, knowing that Vardy's going to get there. It's an easy tap-in for Vardy. It's a well-deserved goal for him and for Leicester. And then they get a late penalty 
um, and Yuri Thielemans dispatches that as well. A 4-1 win for Leicester. It's their best performance of the, of the season, in my view. I would put it down as more impressive than their win over Man City because of the number of players they had injured. Like, if you look at their best 11, or what you would imagine their strongest 11 to be, Pereira at right back, Castanier at left back, Evans and Sionchu in the centre. That back four was entirely missing yesterday. Ndidi as the holding midfielder, he was out. Cheng is under from the right, he was on the bench, came on, played well. Tielemans, Madison, also on the bench, came on, played well. Barnes on the left and Vardy up front. As a 4-1-4-1, I think that is, for now, their best 11. And last night, they started that game without seven of them. That's really impressive to me, to go to Leeds and beat them with seven of your best 11, not in the starting 11. I think this Leicester team are very, very good. My question mark is over the manager, as it always has been. Um, they, the Brendan fans were crowing last night after this result, and rightly so. They were really, really good. But didn't crow too much when they were getting thumped by West Ham. Not much to say last season from Christmas onwards when they threw away a 90, 98% probable finish in the top four to finish fifth uh, after a dreadful run of form, relegation form, basically, from Christmas onwards. I think this Leicester team is for real. And if Brendan can get out of his own way and not try to be too clever, and if they can keep players fit once they come back, they have a real ch- real shot at top four. They really do. I think three, three places in that top four, I think, are, are nailed on. Liverpool, City, and Spurs. That fourth spot is wide open, and I know I picked Everton, but I'd rather have that Leicester squad. I went with Everton because of Carlo, but this Leicester squad is better than Everton's squad. Their best 11, I think, is substantially better than Everton's best 11. Um, and Wesley Fafana is going to be one of the best defenders in the league. I think if they can keep Sionchu for another couple of years, and Ndidi. That trio of Fafana, Sayonchu, and Ndidi in front is going to is going to win them some honours. I don't know what they'll be. They could be FA Cups, League Cups. With a couple more additions, they could be Premier League contenders. They really could be Premier League champions. Again, with a couple more additions. Nothing major. There's so much talent there, and they're all in and around the right age. Now, the big question mark is how long can Vardy sustain it, and what happens if he's out? They don't have anybody who's a direct replacement for him. Iheanacho and Perez are supposed to be their backup strikers. They're very different types of players to Jamie Vardy. Now, Brendan Rodgers has experimented a little bit with using Harvey Barnes in that role. And he does have some of the same attributes. Very, very quick. Loves to press. He's not got Vardy's finishing, though. So that is one area I think they'll need to address. Um, I would rather have a natural left back than Castanier and use Castanier kind of then as the third one who plays both sides. But he's a good player. It's not a weakness. It's just I think they could maximize that area. 
Um, and then in that four four one four one, I like under. I need to see him perform consistently at a high level. He's the other one that you'd look to maybe replace. They don't own him, obviously. They just have an option to buy if they want to keep him. So we wait and see what happens with that. But they're really, really close to being an excellent, excellent team. Uh, and that was a great result for them last night. So Premier League table then after match week seven. Liverpool top despite not having played well for the majority. Leicester second. Spurs third. Everton fourth. Southampton fifth. Wolves sixth. Chelsea seventh. Aston Villa down to eighth. Arsenal up to ninth. City in tenth. Then you've got Newcastle, Leeds, Palace, West Ham. United in 15th, Brighton, Fulham, West Brom, Sheffield United, and Burnley. I think if you look at that league table, Brighton will feel a little bit... Actually, let's start at the top. Liverpool will be very happy to be where they are. They'll feel a little bit fortunate to be where they are, given some of the performances and that horrendous defensive record. Second worst defence in the league. Uh, Only West Brom have conceded more. Um, But they'll be very, very happy. Leicester will be happy, as will Tottenham, Everton, Southampton and Wolves. I think Chelsea will have expected to be maybe a little bit higher at this point. Villa will be happy. Arsenal will have expected to be a bit higher. And Arsenal's issue so far is that they either win or they lose. There's no drawn games. They're a little bit overly passive. And when they fall behind, they do struggle to get back into games. Now, City do have a game in hand, obviously. And if they win that, they would go to uh, to fourth. That game in hand is against Villa, though. And that's a difficult game. So if Villa won it, they would jump it, potentially into second place. At worst, into third. But I think both teams will be fairly happy to be where they are after six games, knowing that they have that game in hand. City would probably want to be better. I don't think they'll be too happy about you know the manner in which they lost to Leicester. Not so much the defeat itself, but the manner in which they lost. But the draws uh, against Leeds and, and Villa, I think, or Leeds and West Ham, I think will, will have them a little bit rattled. Newcastle are thrilled, absolutely thrilled with where they are right now. I think Leeds will be happy enough. I think they will want to sort out their defensive issues. 13 goals conceded through seven games it isn't what Bielsa will want. Palace will be happy. West Brom will be. I'm sorry, West Ham will be happy. United will not be happy, and nor should they be. Now they do have a game in hand, and that game in hand is against Burnley. Given how Burnley have started the season, you would absolutely expect United to win that. However, that will only jump them to twelfth. So United won't be happy at all with how their league campaign has begun. Uh, Brighton will feel very hard done by. Two of their defeats against United and Chelsea, they were the better team, should have won both games. They will look at it and think, you know, if they even won one of those games, they'd be 14th rather than 16th, feeling a little bit better about themselves. Said it all along, failure to buy a striker, failure to buy a left wing back, that's what's cost them. Fulham won't be happy, but I think they'll be content to be 17th at this point. I think if you said to them you will be 17th all season long, they would be absolutely thrilled. West Brom will not be happy. They won't. They will look at themselves against Fulham, and they, they will look at it and say, 
if we finish above Fulham, at least we're giving ourselves some somewhat of a chance. How much of a chance, that's something we'll find out over the course of the year. But three, three draws and four defeats from their seven games. The three draws, they should have beaten Chelsea. They were 3-0 up, they should have beaten Chelsea. Another one of their draws came against Burnley. That's a game they'll look at and think, we could have won that game. They won't be happy, but they will be happier than the other two teams below them. They will be happier than Sheffield United, and they will be happier than Fulham. Those teams have played 13 games between them. They've taken two points between them. One draw each. And Sheffield United's draw came against Fulham. Burnley's came against West Brom. So going into this weekend, they hadn't taken a point against a team who had yet who, who had won a game yet. These are the teams that finished ninth and tenth last season, and they're nineteenth and twentieth right now, and looking completely lost. At the weekend, yes, they're difficult games. Yes, Sheffield United, a home to Man City, that's a difficult game. But you can look at it a different way as well. You don't necessarily expect to take anything from that game. This season, last season, next season, at any time. When City come to town, for most teams, it's kind of one you've probably marked down as a probable defeat. So it's kind of just a free hit. You can go out and and, and try things. And go out and be really aggressive and, and see what you can get from the game. With City this season having dropped points at Leeds, at West Ham, surely Sheffield United looked at that and thought, well, we're as good as them. Like, we finished ninth last season, Leeds were in the championship. We finished ninth last season, we're better than West Ham. And yet, they offered nothing. They'd one shot on target, and they'd one decent chance laid home, and that was it. 35% possession at home. Didn't really work the goalkeeper at all. Didn't make the defence have to make decisions. Didn't put any pressure on them. Just sort of allowed City to play their own game. Could easily have lost the game 3 or 4 nil. Aaron Ramsdale kept them in it with some very good saves. And the same goes for Burnley. Yes, you don't expect to beat Chelsea at home. You've, but you've got a free hit. And surely you've looked at that Chelsea defence and thought, you know what? Some nice long high balls up to Chris Wood and Ashley Barnes is going to cause these lads problems. That's what we're going to do. From every angle on the pitch, we are just going to thump the ball right into their centre-backs and see what they do. Let's see how Thiago Silva reacts under an aerial assault that he's never have, never going to see in his life. Like he's never seen anything like that. West Brom used the long ball a little bit against them and had great success because he didn't know how to deal with it. He'd never seen it in his life. He was very confused. He played in Brazil, he played in Italy, and he played in France. You don't get many long balls there. You certainly don't get any Chris Woods. And they didn't take advantage of it at all. They made no effort to play that way. Early on, they had a great chance with Ashley Barnes, and he made a mess of it. And that was it. They just sort of folded. 36% 36% possession, three shots on target. Not good enough. Not good enough by a long shot. I'm sorry, they had zero shots on target. What am I saying? They had zero shots on target. Mendy didn't have a save to make. New goalkeeper. You don't want to test them at all? 
You don't fancy Josh Brown. He'll just a whack one from 25 yards. Two very concerning performances. And it's not just those ones. It's their entire season. They've scored six goals between them. More worrying, they've conceded 22 goals between them. Burnley have conceded 12 goals through six games. It's an average of two a game. Over the course of the season, that would be 76 goals. This is Burnley, one of the one of the teams that build their whole reputation on how they are defensively. And that's what they're turning in. Dreck, week after week. Now, defensively, the league is appalling this season. Arsenal have the best defensive record in the league. Uh, they've conceded seven and seven, so one goal a game. Nobody has conceded less than a goal a game. You've got six teams who've conceded, who are conceding two goals a game. Uh, you've got another six teams who are conceding, who've conceded over 10 this season. Like, it is historically bad defending across the league. Other than Arsenal, nobody is going to look at their defensive record and be happy with it. Like, Liverpool have conceded over two goals a game through seven games. Now, seven of them did come against Villa, but still. Defensively, the Premier League is is as, as bad as it's ever been. And it shows no sign of changing. And whether it's because attacking players have a bit more confidence in themselves now without the fans there to try things, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But up and down the league, you're just seeing calamitous defensive performances. And it's something that's going to need to be addressed. It really is something that's going to need to be addressed by a lot of teams. Because it's just not sustainable. Like It's not sustainable for Liverpool to continue to concede two goals a game and expect to be in the title race. Because if they do that, they're going to have to score three a game to win games. And you just can't do that week after week after week. Um, right, that is the state of the table as things stand. Seven games in, four teams of six games played, but we've been through them. Like I say, Burnley are bottom of the league. They do have a game in hand, but it is against Manchester United, so not really fancying their chances all that much in that one. Now, Gareth Crooks. <laughs> Gareth Crooks is, of course, a former professional football player, and he is now a pundit for the BBC. He uh, tends to do a team of the week on the BBC website, and it is generally awful. Like, he has done things like suggest that England should call up Johnny Evans, who's from Northern Ireland. In the past, he has made bizarre suggestions as to who should be in the team of the week. Um, and... This week, he has gone down the same xenophobic path that I discussed yesterday. Um, as Match of the Day did, as TalkSport did, as Tony Cascarino did, Garth Crooks has just run down the same path. Uh, he has accused Mo Salah of cheating. Uh, he has said that Jordan Henderson should take it upon himself to have a word with Mo Salah. And then... A short while later in his piece, he has praised Callum Wilson for the guile and cleverness he has used to win a penalty. Um, baffling stuff. The double standard is incredible. Really, really is incredible. More incredible was the fact that he picked Henderson in his team of the week 
and tried to give him credit for Liverpool's winning goal, claiming that it was his cushioned pass to uh, Shakiri that made the goal. He played a simple three-yard pass. It was Shakiri who made the goal. Um, but he, his entire paragraph, or three paragraphs as it was, on Henderson, two of them were about Mo Salah. Two of them were about Mo Salah. The third one was trying to give credit for Shakiri's pass to Henderson. He put that much effort into having a go at Salah. And then excused Callum Wilson. Completely excused him. Now, I think Wilson was fouled as well. I don't think there was a problem with that penalty. But it is just, it's staggering what we're seeing. And yeah, did he get on talk sport last night, Simon Jordan, along with uh, Jim White, just morons, absolute morons, talking out of their ears. It really needs to stop. It, it's unacceptable that in 2020, there is that blatantly open narrative been pushed by mainstream media, and not like fringe. This is the BBC, national broadcaster, Talksport is a national broadcaster, The Times, one of the three biggest papers in the country, and they're the ones that are pushing this. Like I suggested, I, I, you know, you don't want to make judgments on people, but the proof is there. Like. Go back and read previous columns by the same Garth Crooks and you will see similar patterns. Same with Cascarino. Same with TalkSport. Regularly with TalkSport, I mean, it is what they do. Uh, match of the day, the same. Foreign players, bad. English players, clever. Clever. Oh. We'll wrap up with some gossip. Um... Manchester City could offer Barcelona and Argentina forward Lionel Messi a pre-contract in January before a move to England next summer. Uh, doesn't That's just saying what they could do. It's not suggesting that they will do it. You'd imagine they will try. You'd imagine they will attempt to, uh, to draw Messi to the Etihad this summer, or next summer rather, um, because, you know, you only really get that one opportunity to sign a player like him. And even at 33, you'll get a couple of good years out of him where he'll be an enormous draw. Every game will be sold out and properly sold out, not not the way they normally sell out. Those games will be properly sold out. Season ticket sales that go through the roof, merchandise sales that go through the roof. And um, he'll he'll win you trophies. Of course he will. He's the best player in the world, arguably the best player ever. So. It makes sense for them to do that. I think he's going to end up staying at Barcelona now. I have to say, I think the fact that the board have, have resigned, I think it leads to Messi staying more than it leads to Messi leaving. City are prepared to make England forward Raheem Sterling and Belgian midfielder Kevin De Bruyne the highest paid players in the Premier League. Well, behind Messi, obviously. Um, it makes sense. Kevin De Bruyne, I think, is he's the best or second best player in the league. It's him and Virgil van Dijk, and with van Dijk being out injured, it is now Kevin De Bruyne. So makes sense to, to give him a huge new contract and keep him 
for you know the last few years of his prime. Sterling is only 25, so again, it makes massive sense, the development that we've seen with him over the last couple of years from a promising attacking player to then being a, a good but inconsistent player, and now he's, he is a great player. He is a great, great player, and it makes sense at 25 to lock him down as long as you can. Making him the highest-paid players in the league is, you know, it's it's arbitrary, really. Nobody really knows what certain players earn. It's a lot of speculation. Um, I believe David De Gea is the highest-paid player right now, uh, followed by Mesut Ozil, who's getting paid to not play football. So you're talking big numbers, though. You're talking $20 million a year. To, to make them higher paid than De Gea. So it's a big commitment. It really, really is. But they have the money, and those owners are there for the long haul as well. There's no no issues there. Atletico Madrid have joined Bayern Munich and Sevilla in keeping tabs on Brighton's England under-21 right-back, Tariq Lamptey. I would suggest that Sevilla could not afford him, and I would suggest that Atletico Madrid will have no interest because he does not fit the bill of a Diego Simeone defender. So... I would say it is Byron, and I would say everything else is agents and the club leaking things out to try and drive the price up. Because if Byron decide they really want Lamptey next summer, it's going to be very hard for Brighton to keep hold of him unless he wants to stay, unless he really wants to stay and doesn't want to go anywhere else. Now he may. That's you know, he's only twenty. He's only been there what at this point eleven months. So he may decide that for the purpose of his development, he's better to stay and play every week in a back th- in a back three system that gives him more freedom as a wing back, as opposed to at Bayern where he'll be required to play as a full back. I may not start every game because they also have Benjamin Pavard there, uh, who's a very very good player. So it it all depends on him. But I I think the Atletico Madrid and Sevilla uh, links are nonsense. Manchester United, Leicester and Everton are all interested in Villarreal and Nigeria winger Samuel Chukwesi, understandably for all three teams. I think he's actually a really good fit for all three teams. He would require Everton to just slightly change the system to a 4-2-3-1, uh, play him on the right, Richarlison on the left and James behind Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Now you'd have to make a slight alteration in midfield, but I think Decore and Alan or Gabaman and Alan will be absolutely fine. At Leicester, he fits into that right-sided role that under is likely to play this season when everybody's fit and they go to their 4-1-4-1. Um, he's, he's a better player than Cheng is under, and he's got a higher upside. And um, for Manchester United, I mean, at the moment, they need all the help they can get. But yeah, I think if you could play him on the right... Rashford on the left and then either Martial or Greenwood through the middle I think you'd be very very happy with that front three still need massive help at holding midfield massive help at centre back but he would be a big improvement and he probably fits a little bit better than Jadon Sancho if they really want to play at a high tempo and they want to be a team that exploits space in behind and goes back to front really quickly. Not long ball, but just like kind of a direct style, similar to how Liverpool used to do a couple of years ago. He's a better fit than than Jaden Sancho. He'd probably be a lot more affordable than Jaden Sancho as well. 
Uh, Paris Saint-Germain will be keen on a move for Tottenham's England midfielder Deli Ali. If he's made avail- available in January, the French club made three failed attempts to sign him on loan in the summer. I don't believe they did. I don't know why you would try to loan somebody three times if you're told the first time no, he's not available for loan. I'm not sure you would try a second time, especially given he only really became available towards the end of the window. Like, did they just ring every day and ask for the half on loan? Uh, I don't believe that they asked for him three times. But it would make sense for, for all parties. He needs to get out of Tottenham. He needs to go somewhere and kickstart his career again because he has stagnated. He had back-to-back poor seasons. He's out of the picture at the minute, um, limited to Europa League starts and, and not even playing well in them. But one of the reasons he's not playing well in them is because he's not getting games in the league. He's not even in the matchday squad a lot of the time. So he does need to go. He needs to go somewhere. If he wants to play for England next summer, he definitely needs to go in January, even if it's on loan. And I think it might make sense for Spurs to send him on loan as well. Because if he goes somewhere on loan, especially somewhere like PSG, and he does really well, it'll it'll push his price back up. Right now his price is probably the lowest it's ever been since they bought him. This is a guy who, I mean, three years ago there was talk that clubs are going to pay $100 million for him. What would you get from now? 35 40 maybe? At a push? So yeah, for Spurs it makes sense to send him on loan and try and rebuild that value. For him, it makes sense to go out and get things rolling again. He's He's far too good to be sitting in the stands watching other players play. Um, Barcelona will make a fresh £7 million offer for Manchester City defender Eric Garcia, who is at a contract at the end of the season, and they'll do that in January. I have to be honest, I don't see the hype with him. I really don't see the hype with him, not as a centre-back. I think maybe you could turn him into a really, really good holding midfielder, but I just don't see it at centre-back. For me, he's he doesn't have the physicality He's quite small. He's not quick. He gets bullied quite easily. I don't think he reads the game all that well at this point. But that's something, obviously, he'll develop. But I just don't see the hype in him as a centre-back at this point. Um, Obviously, others do. Whether it's down to his nationality, his ability on the ball, I think, is probably what it is. It's certainly not his defensive ability. But for me, like if your defenders aren't going to be good enough on the ball or aren't going to be good enough defensively, I just don't see the point. Um, Bartomeu's resignation as Barcelona uh, president could complicate that move. I doubt it. I, I doubt his resignation will complicate anything. I think it's going to make things a lot easier. Um, David Alaba has criticized Bayern Munich after discovering the club have withdrawn their offer of a new contract and his deal runs out at the end of the season. He has been linked with a couple of Premier League teams, notably Liverpool, Manchester United and Man City. He would obviously be a fantastic addition for anybody. Uh, Brighton head coach Graham Potter dropped Neil Mope against Tottenham because of his bad attitude. It's a little bit concerning at this point because you're a long way from Christmas and a long way from that January window. They need him in the team. They don't like. They looked blunt at the weekend. They had a front three of Pascal Gross, Adam Lallana, and Leandro Trossard, none of whom are strikers. None of whom are going to get you consistent goals. 
they need Mopey in the team. They really, really do. And then my favorite story of the week, <laughs> Mazzino, who is the father of Tiago Alcantara and Rafinha, came out and said, and it, I don't think he meant it to come across this way, but it really threw some shade on his younger son. So he basically said that PSG wanted to sign Thiago, couldn't, and then settled for Rafinha. And I'm sure he, he meant, you know, he was trying to big up Rafinha and, and you know, make it seem like, yeah, you, you didn't get this one, but you did get the other one. He's really good as well. But it just came along like, you know, you got the consolation prize, the participation medal. Uh, Rafinha is a, is a wonderful player. He's so, so talented. Injuries have, have spoiled most of his career. But, um, yeah, it was just, it's a funny story involving a funny family. And that's it. That is our show for today. Uh, nice and quick, thankfully enough. Thank you, as always, to uh, Guy Drinkle. Thank you to Foxhound for the title music. And thank you to you, as always. Tomorrow, hopefully, with Lee Scott, hopefully his connection problems have been sorted. Um, do give me a follow on Twitter, at TwoFootedPod. Leave a review or a, a you know five-star rating, if you'd like, on your podcast provider. And uh, until then, I'll see you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.